Welcome to a brand new edition of Problematic Women. I'm Lauren Evans, and guest hosting with me today is Virginia Allen. Welcome, Virginia. Up today on Problematic Women, Alyssa Milano and Ted Cruz plan to take their Twitter beef about guns to a meeting on Capitol Hill. Some faculty at the University of Kansas are upset about the evil but equally delicious Chick-fil-A because it got an upgraded location on their campus. Finally, Kim Kardashian chooses an interesting new model for her shapewear line. And of course, as always, we will crown our Problematic Woman of the Week. Each week on Problematic Women, we sort through the news to find stories that are of particular interest to conservative-leaning or problematic women, those whose views and opinions are often excluded by those on the so-called feminist left. If you are a problematic woman or just someone who supports strong, independent women, please consider supporting us by leaving a five-star review on iTunes and encouraging your friends to subscribe. It really does make a difference. All right, we are kicking off today's show with some tragic news. I'm sure you all heard that over Labor Day weekend, seven innocent lives were taken by a gunman in Odessa, Texas, and 22 others were injured. In response to this shooting, Republican Texas State Representative Matt Schaefer tweeted, quote, I am not going to use the evil acts of a handful of people to diminish the God-given rights of my fellow Texans, period. None of these so-called gun control solutions will work to stop a person with evil intent. Now, actress and activist Alyssa Milano replied to Representative Schaefer's tweet, with the question, quote, can someone cite which passage of Bible God states it is a God-given right to own a gun? This guy is unbelievable and is clearly owned by the gun lobby. Now, things got really interesting when Texas Senator Ted Cruz replied to Milano saying, quote, an excellent question worth considering carefully without the snark of Twitter. It is, of course, not the right to a modern-day firearm that is God-given, but rather the right to life and the right to liberty. Essentially, that right to life and that right to defend your life and your family. Now, Cruz continued in a thread of 10 tweets, uh, and I thought it was really interesting just how thoughtful he was in this thread of tweets. He actually presented what I felt like was a pretty fair and thought out argument for Twitter. He used scripture. He cited the Declaration, the Constitution, and it all kind of hinged on this overarching argument that our right to self-defense is a part of natural law. In other words, it's God given. So like he cited Exodus 22, 2, which says, If a thief is caught breaking in at night and strikes a fatal blow, the defender is not guilty of bloodshed. In the Declaration, he cited, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal and endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. And among those are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. So as I was reading through Senator Cruz's response, I was honestly really looking forward to what Milano was going to say. But I was a little disappointed. So she starts off strong. She says, quote, I'd love to come in and meet with you on the gun issue and many other issues that include life, liberty and the pursuit of happiness at Ted Cruz and also First Peter 4, 8. And she continues, quote, I'll be in D.C. next week. And then this is where it starts to go downhill. We can live stream the meeting so the American people can hear your expletive firsthand. Now. I just was 
very disappointed by this because here we have Senator Cruz. He's trying to be very, very reasonable. He's laid out a pretty solid argument, in my opinion. And Milano's first reaction is quick. It's easy. It's we disagree. So I'm kind of just going to cuss you out, which I love back to back. She quotes first Peter four, eight, which mm-hmm. is above all, love each other deeply. And then she calls out his bull. Yeah, it doesn't make sense. It's like you're saying, let's find where we agree. Let's love each other above all. But I'm still going to be really angry at you. So then Senator Ted Cruz replies, quote, I'd be happy to sit down and visit next week about uniting to stop gun violence and about the Constitution. If we can have a civil and positive conversation in the spirit of First Peter 4, 8, as you suggest, despite our political differences, that might help resolve the discord in our nation. Now, Milano did. She tweeted back that she contacted his scheduler and that she was working to set up a meeting either next Monday or Tuesday, I believe, with Senator Cruz. So, Lauren, I want to ask you, what was your initial reaction when you saw this whole thread back and forth? And what do you think about this meeting? Do you think that anything positive can actually come out of it? If they do sit down together, I think it's really sad in 2019 that this is a civil discussion because only one expletive was thrown. I think I would be really excited to watch this live stream meeting. I think some good could come out of it, especially if Alyssa Milano actually does want to have a conversation and not just use this to forward her agenda. And and the same thing does go for Senator Cruz. I don't know if I can really see, especially with this gun issue that is so divisive. The left wants to take away guns and the right believe the guns are a God-given right. And there's not a lot of middle ground for that. So I'm really interested to see what happens. I'm really happy to see this dialogue. But at the end of the day, like, yeah, it's just really disappointing that this is where we're at in our country. It's doubtful that some you know, amazing new piece of legislation will come from Melissa Milano and Ted Cruz sitting down. But I do think it's such an important example to the nation that, OK, if if two people that come from very different backgrounds and perspectives can sit down and have a conversation after what started out as kind of a rocky exchange on Twitter, that speaks volumes for, OK, if, if they can do it, maybe I can do it with my neighbor that I disagree with and so on and so forth. I want to play a clip from a video that... Alyssa Milano posted shortly after this exchange on Twitter. And in the video, she talks a little bit uh, about, you know, her her frustration and sadness over gun violence and the history of gun violence in America. Take a listen. We hear a lot of excuses about, well, background checks won't do anything or background checks wouldn't help with this one or um, how can we possibly... Uh, you know, ban AR-15s and yada, yada, yada. But at this point, isn't it worth a shot? Um, Shouldn't we do something considering people are dying? So I was really interested in what Milano had to say here. Because obviously, Lauren, you and I don't believe that guns should be banned. But I think we're both of that agreement with Milano that, okay, yes, something needs to be done What kind of do you agree with as far as what Milano is saying? And then what do you think about her logic of kind of saying, well, something needs to be done, so let's try this? I think whenever a tragedy happens, your first thought is action, 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 which is noble. But 
we need to take a step back and think, why is this happening? Guns have been around in American society since before America was even America. So why is it just now that these mass shootings are becoming more and more prevalent and more frequent? And I think there's a lot, there's a sickness in our culture and the way that we don't love one another like ourselves. And I think a lot of it has to do with a lack of religion in society, a lack of we're able to find commonality with one another. And, you know, we had Amy Swear on a couple weeks ago on this podcast, and she talked about some red flag laws that we could look into where if you have a friend who is going through some mental issues and they're trying to get a gun or they have a gun and you are really concerned about them and others around them, you can go to the local law enforcement, which in a lot of cases like in Parkland, people around them did go to law enforcement and, and tried to flag this individual and, and law enforcement failed to act. So, yeah, there is some small commonality, but I think just spinning your wheels to say, oh, we need to just get rid of guns is so missing the main point of what's really wrong with society. Mm -hmm. I really encourage our listeners to go back and listen to that interview with Amy Swear because I really think that hit the nail on the head that we do want the quick and easy fix. And it's so tempting to kind of say, well, if we eliminated all guns, people wouldn't be able to shoot people. Well, it's not that simple. And there are these, like you said, there's these compounding factors. There's lack of religion. There's a lack of fatherlessness and many, many things that play into uh, the rise of, of acts of gun violence. And we have to take those all of those things into consideration and not just kind of point to the quick fix and say, let's do that. And I'm going to say something a little bit problematic. What you can do as a quick fix, be praying for our country. And yeah. if, if you're not religious, just take the time to really express kindness to others, because it might be such a little thing to you. But I think that's one way that we can really be working together to better our society. Yeah. Yeah, because at the end of the day, we all disagree. Like, people should not be dying. Innocent people should not be dying at the hands of guns. All right. And now we're going to transition and move our conversation to the University of Kansas. Move. Get it? Move. <laughs> and Chick-fil-A. <laughs> I am kind of a huge fan of Chick-fil-A, just a little. <laughs> so some faculty at the University of Kansas are not happy. Why? Because Chick-fil-A on the university's campus was moved from a basement location to the center of the student union. In a letter written to the university, the Sexuality and Gender Diversity Faculty and Staff Council wrote, quote, To express our extreme frustration at the university's moves over the summer to deepen its relationship with Chick-fil-A, end quote. The Sexuality and Gender Diversity Faculty and Staff Council holds this, quote, extreme frustration because of Chick-fil-A's stance on LGBTQ issues, particularly its, quote, history of supporting organizations that are hostile to lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, and queer LGBTQ people, families, and communities, end quote. Chick-fil-A CEO Dan Cathy has publicly said that he believes marriage is between one man and one woman, and the organization does support various nonprofits that hold to the same beliefs, such as the Salvation Army and the Fellowship of Christian Athletes. Lauren, in full disclosure, we're Chick-fil-A fans. Huge Chick-fil-A fans. I could probably eat Chick-fil-A every day and never get tired of it. I would not be healthy. I could eat anything with just Chick-fil-A sauce on it. <laughs> <laughs> so good. 
Uh, but what were your first thoughts and reactions when you heard this story? Uh, I think just slamming my head against the desk. <laughs> they never once cite where Chick-fil-A has ever discriminated against someone who is gay or transgender or lesbian. They never talk about, besides just one person, the head of the organization, saying, I believe marriage should be between one man and one woman. They never talk about, oh, a gay person was denied service at one of their locations. Never even that Dan Cathy was rude or did anything to discriminate against gay or transgender people. So it's just really frustrating that because one person has this idea, this whole company is bigoted. When in my own personal experience, Chick-fil-A is like the most welcoming place to everybody where they're just all smiles and how can I help you? So it's just really frustrating that this one group of people is making this stink about a successful restaurant with good service, not even moving onto their campus, but just moving to another location on campus. So what's most scary about this is that these are not students. These are mm-hmm. the people who are in charge. I imagine that the sexual and gender diversity faculty and staff, with the word faculty and staff, these are paid university on public campuses staff protesting this. This is not some college sophomore studying gender studies. This is people who this is their whole job to think about this. And the fact that they're influencing the youth of America, I just think is really scary. Yeah, I think it's kind of an insult in some ways to students that you have faculty essentially sort of saying our students are this fragile that they can't handle Chick-fil-A in the middle of our campus because Chick-fil-A holds to different moral principles than many of our students. It's a pretty sad commentary on where we've come. I want to read uh, another section of this letter that the Sexuality and Gender Diversity Faculty and Staff Council, they write, quote, while we recognize that contractual obligations did not allow the complete removal of the brand from campus, we are outraged that they have been allowed to move from the Wesco Underground to a new, bigger, more central location on the University of Kansas campus. Despite our denouncements and the university's own moves to increase the campus's diversity, equality, and inclusion, KU granted Chick-fil-A a bastion of bigotry, a primal retail location in the heart of our campus. The union houses spaces that the KU community designates as safe and accepting, not least of which are the Office of Multicultural Affairs and the Center for Sexual and Gender Diversity. Uh, So, wow, calling Chick-fil-A a bastion of bigotry. What do you feel like, Lauren, are the dangers of labeling those who disagree with us automatically as bigots, especially on a university campus? I think Chick-fil-A should just roll with it as an ironic a bastion of bigotry. That's insane. One man at the top of the company who believes that marriage should be between one man and one woman. And guess what? I believe that marriage should be between one man and one woman. But I have no problem with people who are gay or transgender. It's just not what I believe. Going back to what Alyssa Milano was talking about, First Peter 4, 8, above all, love each other deeply. And part of loving each other is having a belief system and, and wanting what's best for the people around you. People on the left and people who label Chick-fil-A as bastions of bigotry, they don't want to have a conversation to talk to those who believe this, to understand that it's actually coming out of a place of love, of saying, you know, the Bible says that marriage should be between one man and one woman, and that's because that's the way that God set up two humans to have the most fulfilling life. And and that's not saying that every person in the world has to get married, but that's just the way that 
we were created and marriage is a way to show communion between God and the church. We could go on and on and on about it, but they don't want to have this conversation. They want to label people who believe in one man, one woman as bigots. And it's just so frustrating. And it goes back to, again, First Peter 4, 8 and the second commandment, which they love to cite, which is love your neighbor as yourself, which is important. The first and the second commandments are the most too important. But they always forget about the first commandment. Thou shalt not have no other gods before me. And, and they're not willing to look at the first commandment and understand where Christians are really coming from and why they, they look at the Bible and they, they trust God so much. And, and that it really bleeds into the second commandment. It's getting me fired up right now because I, I want them to listen. I want them to know that I care about them. Mm-hmm. And just because I believe the marriage should be between one man and one woman, I, I really want what's best for their lives. I think it's it's often frustrating because you hear the left talk about, you know, how beautiful differences are and, you know, let's celebrate our differences in our culture. And but you have to think the exact same way we think. And like that's that can't be the foundation of relationships. We get to choose who we're in relationships with. And if it's based entirely on agreement, you probably wouldn't have any friends because, you know, we don't always agree with our friends. We don't always agree with our family. There's such beauty in being able to maintain relationship uh, and say, okay, yes, we're, we agree on these areas, but we, we do agree on these things and let's focus on those and kind of set this aside and agree to disagree and just value each other and value who we are as human beings and really truly learn to love each other well as Christ loves his church. And if we can't agree that an eight-pack Chick-fil-A nuggets with a cold <laughs> Diet Dr. Pepper and some Chick-fil-A sauce is just the best meal. Dr. Pepper. Diet Lauren, Dr. Pepper. Diet Dr. Pepper. Sweet tea at Chick-fil-A. You can't go to Chick-fil-A and get soda. You have to get sweet, <laughs> sweet tea or lemonade. <laughs> All right. So we're going to take a quick break. But before we do, I want to tell you about this really awesome podcast that if you're not listening to, you definitely should. It is by the Independent Women's Forum, and it's called She Thinks. And each week it brings you fresh, relevant content in a fun way without all the kind of politically correct nonsense. On She Thinks, substance and style supersedes political spin. Led by the wonderful and charismatic Beverly Hallberg, She Thinks podcast features some of the country's top women, conservative leaders, and independent thinkers. Independent Women's Forum is known for championing women's rights to be heard and respected without the crutch of the female victimhood narrative espoused by the mainstream media, special interest in the Hollywood elite. Check out what all the buzz is about by subscribing to the She Thinks podcast wherever you get your podcasts or just visit IWF.org. Welcome back. You might remember earlier this summer, reality star Kim Kardashian West decided to start a shapewear line and give it the brand name that played off of her own name, Kimono. Social justice warriors were enraged at that name, quickly accusing Kardashian West of cultural appropriation because a kimono is a traditional Japanese article of clothing. Faced with this pressure from those on the left, Kim did decide to change the name of the company to Skims. Kana also a play off her own name. It's in the news again this week for an interesting choice of spokesperson. Let's roll the clip. My name is Alice Marie Johnson. I'm from Memphis, Tennessee. I'm wearing the sculpting bodysuit. I was serving a life plus 25-year sentence without the possibility of parole. Kim saw a video of me. She heard my story. She said, this is so unfair. And by the way, I didn't even know who Kim Kardashian was. She went to war for me to fight for my freedom. That's why I call her my war angel. 
because nothing stood between her and my freedom. I was set free on June the 6th, 2018. So now every moment in life is precious to me. Waking up in the morning and not having a bunk bed over my head is precious to me. Being able to open the door whenever I want to and just walk outside and breathe in fresh air, to breathe in freedom, that is precious to me. This shapewear makes me feel that I can walk into the store, I can pick up something that I normally wouldn't even think about wearing, and I can put it on, and it's going to look great on me. This shapewear makes me feel free. For those who don't know who Alice Johnson is, she was sentenced to life without parole for a nonviolent drug case. After serving 22 years of her sentence, Kim Kardashian West started a successful campaign working with President Trump, who granted her clemency on June 6, 2018. What do you think about this, Virginia? Do you think it's a good choice, both business-wise and also morally, for Kim Kardashian to use this woman who she helped release from prison to promote her shapewear line? I think it's a really beautiful picture of how in America you can go from kind of being nothing to now having a platform within America and being successful you know, she was, Alice Johnson was in jail two years ago. She was sitting in prison and now she's this public figure. Uh, she is promoting a product with Kim Kardashian. She seems to be doing very well. She's fighting for others as part of uh, criminal justice reform. And this is a story that we watched unfold on the news. You know, we watched Kim Kardashian meet with President Trump and advocate for Alice Johnson. And now we're getting to watch this kind of come full circle. And it's almost like a nice bow being tied on top of this story. And so, you know, it's, it's not just this random person. Kim Kardashian could be just promoting this line herself. She could have chosen another celebrity. But she's chosen a woman that has this really wild backstory that I feel like probably the general public can relate to a whole lot more than, you know, a model or a celebrity wearing the inner society and in our culture. And you continue to see it with things like this. I know it is still a little crazy to see Kim Kardashian standing next to President Trump at the in the Oval Office, but not everyone is a fan of Kim's choice of a new spokesperson. Friend of the show Chrissy Clark covered this story over at The Federalist in an article titled Quote, new face of Kim Kardashian West shapewear is ex-convict Trump released from prison and how this is kind of a whole controversy in itself. Quote, critics are calling out Kardashian West for making money off of Johnson's story and are even going as far to blame what they deem the perverted nature of the video on none other than capitalism. Evil capitalism at it again. Yep. Ruins everything. (laughs) Ruins everything. (laughs) Well, I saw I saw a really interesting response from Alice Johnson on this that she kind of lashed back and said, you know, how dare you say that I'm just a pawn in the Kardashians' hand? Like, this was my choice to get involved with this campaign and to be a part of this line of clothing. I wanted this, and I'm really thankful for the opportunity. And I'm, I'm so glad that she stood up for herself and said something. All right, so we are going to take a quick break. You know, it is so easy to get overwhelmed by the 24-hour news cycle, and I know that you might be too. So if you are looking for a way to stay up to date with the news that really matters, the Daily Signal podcast 
brings you the top news of the day. And I co-host the Monday edition with my colleague Rob Bluey to bring you an interview with a lawmaker, an author, or a conservative activist. And of course, we always start your week off right with a good news story. So if you are a conservative who wants to be on top of the news every weekday, please check out the Daily Signal podcast. All right, now on to our favorite part of the show, crowning the one, the only problematic woman of the week. Virginia, would you like to do the honors? I would love to. Thank you, Lauren. And the problematic woman of the week is education choice activist Virginia Walden Ford, who I'm a huge fan of, not just because we share a first name. (laughs) If you've never heard of Virginia Walden Ford, you should look her up. She is an incredible woman born in Little Rock, Arkansas, was one of the first students to desegregate the Little Rock school system back in the 1960s. Flash forward to the 1990s when she had children of her own. She was living here in Washington, D.C. in a neighborhood called Anacostia. She grew fed up with the failing public schools. Her sons had no other choice to attend. So to fight back, she formed a group of local dedicated parents who in just five years convinced Congress, yes, the United States Congress and then President Bush, to create a opportunity scholarship which would give scholarships to low-income students to attend local private schools. Her fight was so influential and so inspiring, they made a movie about it. Ms. Walden, your son's situation is very serious. What up, James? You need a lesson, too? He's a good kid. He's suspended, effective immediately. Next time? There will not be a next time. And there were three of them coming for me next month. School or juvenile hall? You have got to choose. I will move heaven and earth for you to go to a private school. You want to borrow $7,000 for school? I'm going to go, Mom. You're going to rob a bank. You just don't qualify. My son can't wait. Come work for me, I'll hook you up. He needs change today, not tomorrow, not next week, and definitely not eventually. We've been waiting. I'm done. Sir, when you said... I say a lot of things. I'm a politician. What you did so that low-income students could go to private schools. Well, I want to do that here. You have a better chance of winning the lottery than getting that done. On behalf of the parents of Washington, D.C., and present this petition. Ma'am, the rules are clear. Sir, to whom? This is a movement, honey. This is the Sally Ray Show. Please join me in welcoming Virginia Walden. You might just be formidable. You are going to do right by the thousands of kids in Washington, D.C. Miss Walden. Miss Townsend. I have the floor. So you cannot, you will not, deny our children their right to learn. It gives you goosebumps, doesn't it? It really does. I'm getting so pumped up. Well, earlier this year, Virginia Walden Ford sat down with Problematic Women co-host Kelsey Buller to discuss the DC Opportunity Scholarship, the movie, and of course, feminism. Here's that interview. 
In 2004, the first students began participating in the DC Opportunity Scholarship Program, which is a private school choice program serving low income families in Washington, DC. The program enables families whose incomes fall below a certain level to receive scholarship money to send their children to a private school of their choice. This year marks the program's 15th anniversary in the nation's capital, with more than 1,650 children. Currently using it. But despite this sounding like a program that both liberals and conservatives could get behind, the DC scholarship program has faced an uphill battle from opponents, many of them on the left, arguing it takes much needed funding away from already struggling public schools. Virginia Walden Ford is a mother who, for 15 years, has been at the center of this heated debate. A single mother living in Washington, DC. Virginia found herself feeling hopeless and helpless about her children's educational future back in 2004. Instead of accepting the status quo, however, she decided to do something about it. Virginia, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. You have such an interesting story that actually starts many years before 2004, back when you were a child in Little Rock, Arkansas, as the daughter of two public school educators. Let's start there. I was the daughter of two public school educators. My father was actually the assistant superintendent of the Little Rock School District, the first black. And my mother was a fourth grade teacher, the first black, one of four black teachers to integrate schools in Little Rock. So even then, I was part of an advocacy family. Uh, when I got ready to go to high school, I had gone to segregated schools up until that point with all my friends, and I knew my teachers, and everybody was, you know, my buddy. And then all of a sudden, I began the process of going into high school, and we were told that、uh, we had to go to Central High School, which 10 years prior had been the,、uh, where the location of the Little Rock Nine, and, and the president had to call in federal troops and all of that. And now they were going to send me there. And I was like, oh no, I'm not going. And、uh, I want to go to the all black high school. And my dad told me, you have to go because you have to set the tone for your younger sisters. If you don't go and you don't, go do, and you don't do well, your younger sisters are the ones that will suffer. So you have to go. You have a responsibility. And that has stayed with me. All my life. I went to Central. I did well. And my, so my advocacy even started then. You know, I, I talked to other students about why they had to go using my dad's words. So once I got grown and I started having children myself, I was, I, I guess I was an active mother, but never did I think that I would have to fight for anybody but my own babies. You know, my first two kids did well in school. They were driven academically with programs and mentors. They were doing all right. But my third child, William, was a child that everybody thought was destined for failure. And they said that all the time. And、uh, he was the reason that I did this. He was the reason that I felt like I had to advocate on his behalf. We've learned as low income parents or as Single mothers or as working class parents, we've learned that the advocates for our children are us. And that if we don't fight for our kids, others may not think they're worth fighting for. 
or they won't think that we are willing to fight for them. And so that's how, kind of how, how I got to the D.C. Opportunity Scholarship Program, organizing parents and getting parents out was because of those kind of things. But it was daddy's word, you have responsibility. I can't tell you how that rings in my ears all the time. There's this interesting thread that weaves throughout your entire life where when you were a child, uh, the government was telling you what school you had to attend. In that case, it was uh, segregated schools. And your parents took it upon themselves to say, no, we are going to choose to go to a different school. Absolutely. And then when you grew up and, and were a parent yourself, you did the same thing for your children. Um, I want to take a step back from this conversation because not everybody knows what we're talking about when we say school choice or scholarship program. So could you provide some perspective on that? In the 2000s, the District of Columbia traditional public schools were not faring well. Kids were failing. I think they were at 46 percent failure rate. Members of Congress looked at that and said, we need to do something to help D.C. kids. So proposal a couple of times, actually, this was kind of a 10-year process, several proposals providing scholarship help for low-income children in the District of Columbia was proposed, and several times it failed. And then in 2003, we went through um, another process of, of getting some legislation passed, and we organized parents to come speak for themselves on Capitol Hill and talk about how, what despair their children were in. And many members of Congress um, supported us and decided that this was certainly worth fighting for. So after a year-long fight, it actually passed the three-sector initiative. It's the D.C. three-sector initiative for school choice. And it passed in November of 2003, and President George W. Bush who was a big supporter of the parent group, signed it into law 15 years ago on January 23rd. And uh, and it was real exciting. And the program actually started the next month in March of 2004. Well, certainly this program serves all types of students, specifically in Washington, D.C. A lot of the low-income students happen to be minorities And, you know, given the history of this program and given the fact that those on the left so often stand for choice, um, you know, my body, my choice, those types of phrases you hear heard quite often. You know, if you don't know this issue well, you'd be surprised to hear that um, it is it is actually liberals who are the biggest opponents of school choice programs. Why? Absolutely. I, I, you know. There's a part of me that thinks the reason they don't support us because they didn't think of it first, but that's, that's <laughs> just me. But I don't know. Uh, you know, some of it stems back to when Brown versus Board of Education passed and a few years later, schools were trying to be desegregated. And in the in 57, when the Little Rock Nine went in, some of the Southern schools closed after four years. They closed for a year. And white students were going to private schools that were started just because they didn't have a school to go to. Black kids either didn't get educated or were sent away or something like that because it was southern states. I think some of it is that emotional 
kind of thing where they started schools and their kids went to schools and ours didn't, so we're not going to ever support this. I think it's emotional. I think it's uh, they're not thinking straight because usually if you sit down and you talk to um, liberals about what this really means, you can actually change minds. I've done it a million times. But it's uh, it's hard to, on a larger bracket, when we're trying to get a bigger program passed in the state or city or federal, to get everybody on that page. So, okay, that's my kind of idealistic reason. But I people have been asking me that for years, and I promise you, I don't know. You know, I don't get it. Who would not want a child to be in a better environment? I, I, I just never have understand it. Eleanor Norton, Holmes Norton, who is the representative for D.C., has been an opponent of this program from day one. She won't talk about it. She won't think about it. We tried to meet with her. She told us we were not being treated fairly, which I didn't get. And so I have never understood it. I think it's very sad because we have watched children do incredibly well in schools that their parents chose for them. And another myth to that is low-income parents can't choose school because that's not true. They do a better job than some people I know that are more educated. And uh, they came to me with lists of things they wanted for their children. It was beautiful and amazing. So I, I wish I knew. I wish you, I wish there was something I could say that would change the minds of those that oppose these kinds of programs. I know as a conservative, it can be hard enough standing up for school choice programs. Uh, but I, um, you know, I am white and I imagine as an African-American woman, it can be that much harder um, because certain people have certain ideas about how you're supposed to think and vote. So how does race play into this conversation about school choice? Well, to be perfectly honest, and, and I, it's hard for me to talk to some of my family members and friends about how I feel about these particular kinds of issues, and not many issues that are conservative. But if people would think about it, a long time ago, Arkansas was a Republican state. My parents were Republicans, and it changed. They changed later on, but my point is they had, they believed in the values of the Republican Party. They believed in conservative values. I do too. So it's hard. I mean, I often say, uh, you know, I, I'm a three for. I'm African American, a woman, and a Republican. So it it's hard. It's really hard. And uh, but in in the fact, school choice. I fight for kids, you know, and they can't deny me that. Well, speaking of race, I I feel that as a millennial who grew up in an era that didn't have systematic forms of racism on the law, uh, in the law, on the books, I constantly have to remind myself that there are still living people like yourself um, who dealt with systematic forms of racism. And this conversation is so difficult to have these days. Um, what is your advice specifically for millennials? Um, we have a lot of uh, young millennial uh, females who listen to this podcast. What's your advice for them for bridging these conversations and being able to have a productive uh, 
conversation about issues of race in today's world? Well, talk to women my age who are conservative. I mean, you'll find women, there are a lot more people that are conservative just not saying it, so you can seek out people. Um, There are a number of people that I used to go to for advice, you know, when I was younger and going through it. So I know it's got to be hard. Um, But opening up the doors to a real conversation where people are really being honest about how they feel is important. As you notice, I I love and am loved by people at Heritage because I've always been honest, or at least I, I think I've been always honest about my feelings about all kinds of things. I learned that from women older than me who had already been through it. Because when you make choices that are not popular to everybody then or to everybody in your little space, then you have to learn how to bring others into that space, people that do support what you believe. But it is hard, you know. I mean, even myself talking to people, but I'm open. Do you understand I'm open. I mean, if somebody says something, I don't get bent out of shape or angry or upset. I try to focus on what that person is saying and how that person needs to be helped to understand, you know, because I always assume when a person has a question, they want to answer, not a fight. You're also, um, I'm going to switch gears a little bit. You're going to be featured in an upcoming movie um, given this pretty crazy life you live. Tell us about that. Well, about eight years ago, um, I was approached by a film company to do a movie about the DC experience, which can't be told according to them if they don't tell about me. And um, I'll second that. (laughs) (laughs) It's pretty nerve wracking. You know, I am not a person that craves to be on the front, you know, Actually, when I was working with parents here for the legislative fight, I, I made sure that parents learned how to be in the front. And, and and that's the role I like playing. I like teaching people and teaching them how to to take the lead. So it it's uh, interesting. So, But anyway, they wrote a script. They wrote a number of scripts. And then they finally wrote a script that I really thought was a positive script for our story. And our story is that parents in D.C. stood shoulder to shoulder and fought for their children, you know. But there's always got to be a leader that brings them to that. But everybody came to it together. So it's it's pretty amazing what they've done. It's a full feature film. The um, Uzo Aduba, who was crazy ass on um, Orange is the New Black, is playing me. (laughs) And, And she's really good. And uh, that's pretty fascinating. Matthew Modine is playing kind of a uh, the senator, uh, the member of the House, I believe. It's really good. It's pretty exciting. It's pretty fun. Do you know the name yet or where it will be released? <laughs> I've tried to change. The, the name is, of the movie is Miss Virginia. <laughs> that's incredible. <laughs> that, that gives our listeners an idea of the woman we're currently oh. Uh, we currently have the privilege of speaking with. Well, uh, this is a podcast called Problematic Women. Our um, our goal is to reach younger women, specifically, um, you know, women on the right. 
And I always like to end with the question of, do you identify as a feminist? Because, uh, you know, when I interview women who lean right, we always get different and interesting answers. I did when I was younger. I'm an accountant by uh, trade. I mean, that's what I did as a living. I'm an accountant. I was usually one, the only woman in a group of men. And, uh, and so I felt very strongly about letting them know that I couldn't be somebody to be toyed with. So I think I really did identify. I'm not sure if I ever said that I was, but I think I did when I was younger. Now, I just identify as a strong woman. And I think it gives so much more comfort to women who don't even understand what a feminist is. I like being a strong woman, and I like encouraging other women to be strong in whatever they do and uh, making sure that young women know that there's strength in many things that you do, in parenting, in working, in many things that you do. So I, I don't know if I would consider myself. I'm older. I'm calmer. I'm I think I'm sweeter, but, <laughs> <laughs> so I don't know if I do now. But I, but I admired the women that came before me, and I admired those women that stood up and said, "I think, as a person, I'm formed by all of those women, all of them." And so, um, so I have strong emotional feelings about feminists and feminism and and that whole movement um, that I'm proud of. I love that you identify as a strong woman, which you certainly are. Well, Miss Virginia, thank you so much for joining us today. I look forward to seeing this movie. We appreciate you taking the time. Oh, you're very welcome, Kelsey. I love coming here. You know, you all are my other family here. So (laughs) thank you. Thank you. Virginia, are you excited? I am really excited. I I love true stories. I think it's so powerful when Hollywood takes something that really did happen to a real person and they breathe life into the story. And it just this film, I feel like so clearly shows the the power and just that drive of of a determined mom that is fighting for her kids that saw a window of opportunity and said, I'm going to go after this and I am going to fight for this for my kids uh, just in a place of of total love and commitment to her children. And, you know, something like school vouchers and um, school choice, it's it's not traditionally, you know, a really sexy subject, but by making a movie out of it, by Hollywood kind of adding a little bit of, of the dramatic flair, but telling the honest, true story, it allows such an important policy subject to all of a sudden have a place and and a voice in the public square that it wouldn't otherwise have. I agree so much, Virginia, and I think that's why it's so important to take your friends, make a night out of it, go see this movie. It comes out October 18th. And it's really important, too, as as conservatives and people who kind of think outside the box, we need to support movies like this in Hollywood. It has big-name actors and actresses. Go see it. Let it make money so they make more movies like this. While you are waiting for October 18th, The Daily Signal did do two documentaries that are really great that talk about the D.C. Opportunity Scholarship that have students who have used the scholarship recently. It does include Virginia Walden Ford. I'm going to put them in the show notes. Would really recommend that you go ahead and watch that. 
With that, that is going to be it for this week's edition of Problematic Women. Join us next Thursday morning for a brand new edition of Problematic Women. And in the meantime, please subscribe and share. We've gotten so many kind reviews from our supporters, but that's what it takes for us to be successful in the podcast space and to reach as many women as possible. If you haven't yet, please go ahead and give us a five-star review and take the time to just write a kind word and, and share it with your friends. It makes such a huge difference. And have a great week. This podcast is a product of The Daily Signal, produced by Kelsey Bowler and Lauren Evans. Special thanks to our editor-in-chief, Katrina Trinko. We produce Problematic Women in remembrance of our dear friend and former co-host, Bree Payton.